0: Welcome everybody to the American Geographical Society podcast. My name is Katherine Can. We have joining us today, Professor of Geography and Rippy Chair in Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Oregon, Dr. Alexander Murphy. Alec is a political and cultural geographer whose work centers on geopolitical power and the formation and consequence of borders on global processes. Today we're speaking with Alec about the impact of borders on understanding and responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Thanks for being here, Alec.
1: Well, it's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Let's dive right in. The COVID-19 crisis is a global problem. So why is it important to focus on questions of boundaries and territory at a time like this?
1: Well. Boundaries and territory raise a whole lot of issues related to uh, the covid nineteen crisis, both how borders have hardened but also the disconnect that exists between how borders are functioning and how territory is organized and the actual underlying geography of the the, the pandemic so I mean to start with the with the obvious you know what we 've seen in the wake of the covid nineteen crisis is actually a huge number of border closings um something like 90% now of humanity lives in countries with some kind of restrictions on borders. Um, Even, uh, well, nationals usually are allowed to cross borders, but non-nationals, non-residents, not allowed to to cross borders. 90% of humanity, that's over 7 billion people. And of course, what we also see is we see countries involved in bidding wars, you know, between uh, over over uh, PPE, you know, uh, equipment that that doctors and healthcare workers need, over medicines and things like this. There's something like 70 countries that have banned or restricted the export of of, uh, of personal protective equipment. But that's only one part of the issue. The other part of the issue is this interesting disconnect between how we 're framing things in terms of traditional territories and borders, but the un, an underlying pandemic that doesn 't pay any attention to 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 borders, of course, so i mean that 's one of the really interesting things that 's going on right now, and just within the last week we 've seen in the United States actually some interesting efforts to try to deal with that tension, where we have groups of governors, for example, in the eastern seaboard, the mid-Atlantic and northeast region, uh, then the, some of the west coast governors, and now just yesterday, the governors in the upper Midwest, saying we need to collaborate together to actually develop regional responses, because it's not just an issue of this virus exists in this particular way in Pennsylvania, in New York, or whatever. We need to see actually the patterns of the underlying pandemic and work together on responses that actually are more geographically sensitive to the actual nature of the the issue itself. So this is why, you know, we see like Governor Cuomo in New York making reference to geography when he's in his his briefings, or I love the quote from the uh, Rhode Island governor, uh, Gina Raimondo, a, a few days ago where she said, and I quote, the reality is this virus doesn't care about state borders and our response shouldn't. Either. But of course, the other reality is what I started with. It, we're up against a world in which po- political territorial units are incredibly important in terms of how we think about the, the crisis, how we report on the crisis, even how people themselves think about themselves and where they need to be in the face of the crisis. So, one of the sort of really fascinating things to me is how, um, in the when the crisis started to develop and started to unfold, how we saw a huge number of repatriations of people who were working abroad, studying abroad, and so forth, going back to their countries of of origin. So I have a friend who teaches at the University of Amsterdam, and she's got a lot of students from different parts of Europe um, in her geography classes, but she saw many of them, including ones from countries that were hotspots like Italy, going home because, of course, they want to be within their countries and territories, um, you know, at at this time. And then I think the final issue that, you know, I would just throw out as an introductory to this whole whole conversation is the extent to which the, the reporting on what's going on is driven by maps of political territorial units. You know, the typical map we see is a map of the states of the United States and how many cases are in each state or the map of the countries of the world. for every map that shows you something about the more detailed uh, distribution of cases, we see hundreds of maps that define the way we think about the problem in terms of traditional territorial units.
0: Exactly, yeah. I think that's so important to consider when we're looking at these dashboards and these large land areas are turning red with many cases. It's really hard for us to understand the patterns of human mobility and and human geography that people exist and, and live their daily lives on are so important.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's really an interesting disconnect, but it does shape our thinking about what's going on.
0: For sure, and I think we do have a tendency to look at the world in these terms of political maps. That's kind of how we consider the world. So, for example, when we're looking at reporting COVID cases on a state-by-state basis, how does that influence our understanding of the pandemic and how we should approach it?
1: Right, yeah. Well, I mean, this, I I think it has a a huge impact. Think about something like, uh, you know, how we, Report on cases within the United States. There's been a huge amount of tension to New York, maybe a little bit more to New Jersey, but think elsewhere. So we've heard a lot about Louisiana and New Orleans as hotbeds of a crisis. Well, if you actually look at a, uh, a map of the distribution of cases, the Louisiana Mississippi border, the southern border, is uh, not at all a, a border separating intensities of, of cases. In fact, there's a, the real cluster is not just New Orleans or Louisiana, it's that southern part of Louisiana and adjacent parts of of Mississippi. We think about it that way. We think about it in some different ways. Or think about uh, the problem of taking a kind of state-by-state approach at the country level, a country-by-country approach, and how that tendency to think about it in those ways sort of obscures our understanding of the kinds of interactions that actually led to the spread of the virus uh, over time. So, I mean, the most obvious example would be the substantial number of Chinese who were visiting or working in Italy um, at the time that this the uh, COVID-19 crisis started in in Italy. You know, there's a reason why those interconnections led to a particular spread of the virus in Italy or even up, up a part of of Italy. And then, of course, you've got a lot of Italians going up to the Alps in Switzerland to go skiing. And it's that kind of interaction that actually set off the the number of cases that were going on in Switzerland. And we tend not to think about those things if we just go to the default tendency to think about the world in traditional state-based terms. I teach a class in political geography where we look at how much, how common it is for us just to simply take the map of states and treat that as something that is what we need to understand or learn in order to understand geography. You know, the typical question about what do we know about geography is, well, can you put Mexico in the right place on a map? But of course, I mean, that's no more interesting than in some ways than can you name the right date for the civil war. What is interesting is to be able to say, okay, so Mexico occupies a certain geographic space. And that geographic space uh, obviously has some significance, but we also need to to understand how does that geographic space relate to other patterns. And this COVID-19 pandemic is something that really ought to get us thinking about that latter issue.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think even focusing in on, like you said, tourism, you know, we don't necessarily think, okay, pandemics, tourism, or think about how people are interconnected in that way. But it really played a big part. A lot of people were also looking at the spring breakers in the United States that were in what wasn't known as a hotspot and then traveled. We're witnessing patterns of how that kind of turned into the spread of the disease internally. Um, International trips were happening at the same time, of course. Absolutely. So since these frameworks are so ingrained in our heads, what are alternative geographical frameworks that you might suggest to better understand the nature and implications of the COVID-19 crisis?
1: Right. Well, the the most obvious and at this relatively small geographic scale is the one we were talking about a, a minute ago is actually just looking at the distribution of cases not driven by Uh, you know, are they in Louisiana as opposed to Mississippi, or are they in Missouri as opposed to Kansas? Another great example where you've got a a cluster that's right across the border between Missouri and Kansas, but where Western Kansas has actually uh, fairly few cases. So actually just looking at those underlying uh, distributions. But if we move up in scale, I think this initiative by the governors that I talked about is a great example of what why regional collaborations in areas that share some similar sort of characteristics, uh, you know, would, would make sense. And then if we move to the global scale, it kind of gets, uh, raises a whole other set of interesting spaces that we might be sort of thinking about. Um, you know, the trade war between the US and China had already led to some reduction in trade across the Pacific. But as we start seeing what's going on right now, what we may well see is actually some further uh, shifts in overall uh, relationships um, among States, as for example, individual states are getting nervous about the fact that they're not producing enough medicines and PPE for their own citizens. And so they can't rely in the way that they have been relying in the past on, you know, other sources like China or India for their medicines or, or, or their PPE. And I think this could actually lead to some shifting trade patterns if we think beyond just the, the level of individual states. And then there's also just trying to understand other things that are going on around the world. If it's a state by state approach, we actually don't understand, for example, some of the common challenges that the so-called petro states are facing with a combination of COVID-19 and of course shifting oil prices, which are in part a reflection of what's going on with the pandemic, putting them in a particular kind of position that we maybe don't understand if we are thinking separately about Russia or Iran or, or, or Venezuela. And then I think one of the issues that we really need to be thinking about going forward, of course, is the, the economic implications of what's going on are, are enormous. And they may be uh, even greater uh, in the weeks and, and months ahead for um, the less well-off parts of the world. And to the extent to which this may actually lead to new kinds of refugee crises and new kinds of refugee zones that will be uh, will be emerging i think that's an issue that deserves a lot of attention and can easily be swept aside if we just take a country by country approach to looking at the pandemic and its consequences
0: absolutely it's going to affect everybody across borders on border regions i imagine there will be people pouring you know borders are bound to become a lot more porous in a way so thinking more generally about questions of territory and boundaries during a period of pandemic, is this a time when state-by-state territorial nationalism is beating back the trend towards a more globalized and networked world? In other words, are nations turning inward instead of seeking a more global, collaborative approach to solving the crisis?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and there's not an easy answer to it. I mean, I think at least in the short term, clearly sort of state territorial nationalism is, is is winning out in some ways. I mean, you can see this in everything from the you know consolidation of power actually in state g- governments as they try to respond to the situation or even the uh, situation like Hungary, which has tended to actually lead to an even sort of stronger central government in the face of already a lot of tendencies to concentrate power at, at, at the center. Um, and the, you know, the examples I've g- already given, like uh, the restrictions on the export of uh, PPE is another good example of, of, of what's going on. Um, and then there's the kind of stark, but actually little com- commented upon reminder of how much the state still matters when you consider how they deal with the inflow of peoples coming from outside. So most states have actually restricted non-nationals or non-permanent residents from coming into their countries, but nationals can come into their countries. Now, that's interesting. You know, if a, if a Chinese uh, citizen has been living and working in Moscow and is coming back to China, there's no less likelihood that that Chinese citizen might be bringing COVID-19 with him or her than if it were a Russian citizen, yet the Russian citizen can come in and the Chinese cannot. And the same is true in Japan and so forth, and various other places where the restrictions actually depend on the color of your passport or the country affiliation of your passport, not actually your your health status. What an amazing example of of how this is playing out. But at the same time, I mean, the world is incredibly interconnected uh, and the pandemic really serves as a reminder of this. Not just uh, how it spread, of course, that's one obvious example of this, but indeed how the restrictions that have been placed on the movement of people and the repatriations that we've discussed actually shed light on how interconnected we all are. You know, in the European case where you had free movement across borders, borders that are now closed and maybe closed for months ahead. There were business travelers and vacationers and all sorts of other interconnections that were going on across borders that now, have, you know, come to a stop or at least greatly, greatly slowed in the wake of all this. Um, and then the um, the other thing that is quite clear is that you know we can wish um, we can say these interconnections are are there, but they are not easily pushed aside when you actually think about. Where things are coming from that we need in the face of the crisis. So, you know, China produces something like 80% of the world's core chemicals that are used in medicines. India is a huge exporter of medicines that are uh, consumed on an everyday basis in places like Europe and the United States. You're not going to change those overnight. And so, this interconnection that exists is actually going to continue on for a long period period of time. And of course, there are other drivers of those interconnections as well, including labor needs in places like, you know, North America and Europe and so forth. So it's not like those interconnections are going to to go away. Although I would say that I expect to see much as we saw over the last decade or two calls for energy independence, I expect to see a lot more calls for medicine um, independence, which in turn could have an impact on how Uh, trade exists uh, between countries.
0: That's so true. I, for one, have never thought about supply chains as much as I have recently in following the news. It's kind of shocking. Um, And the health trade is, is a really interesting kind of part of the economy that I think we don't think about until we have to, and then we're confronted with these realities. So thanks, Alex. It's been really great talking about geography because geography is kind of coming back into public consciousness with a vengeance. I saw one headline said um, everybody's seeing maps everywhere and we're, you know, really eager to show how our discipline can help explain the crisis, provide really important data for people to make important decisions that will help stem the spread. So I want to turn to your work in geography. You recently published a book aimed at describing geography's importance for science and the general public called Geography, Why It Matters by Polity Press. And does the COVID-19 pandemic help reinforce the arguments you make in that book?
1: Well, I would say the pandemic really is exhibit A for the arguments that I raise in the book. I mean, the pandemic is fundamentally a geographical phenomenon. You know, it starts in a particular place because of the characteristics of those places. It diffuses as a result of the particular spatial interconnections and flows that exist among and between places. Um, And of course, then there's the need for careful consideration of the disconnects that we've been talking about in our conversation between the actual patterns of the pandemic and the Structures that humans have created for governance and for uh, and, and that limit to some degree the way that we think about ourselves and our and our world. So, I mean, all these are really issues that highlight how fundamentally geographic, geographical this uh, this pandemic is. You know, in in the book, I I try to set up the book with a little bit of a general discussion of the history of geographic thought and you know how how and why problems can be geographical but then i have three short chapters one on space one on place and one on human environment relations that all are incredibly well illustrated by the the pandemic i mean the pandemic is a spatial phenomenon it to understand it you have to understand the the spaces of Interconnection, the spaces of flows, the spaces of uh, of uh, uh, p- potential uh, transmission of of the virus. It's a it's an uh, an issue that is fundamentally rooted in the characteristics of places. You know, so often when we think about the world and we try to understand the world, we we sort of hold the differences from place to place constant in our models, you know, we sort of think, well, there's wage differences between one place and another that might lead to migration from one place to another. But in fact, places are are complexes of human and physical factors that you have to understand actually in a connected way to really understand something like how the pandemic evolves and what's happening in response to it in certain places. And then, of course, the human environment is very obvious. But geographers are particularly interested in the coupled human environment characteristics of something like the the COVID-19 crisis, because it's not either simply a human phenomenon or simply a physical phenomenon. It's a connection between the two. And when you when you meld together that interest in the human environment with issues of space and place, I think you have some fundamental insights into what's going on. So, uh, you know, what we all uh, hope to be uh, succeeded by students who do better than we do. And one of my great examples is a recent student of mine, Derek Watkins, who uh, now is uh, works as a, as a graphics editor for the New York Times. And uh, Derek has just uh, given, I think, some great examples of how geographic thinking can help us understand what's going on uh, with with the crisis. His contributions to stories on how the virus got out in, in March and to a um, f- fairly recent discussion of where Americans didn't stay home as a result of the crisis and where they did and the mapping that goes with those kinds of stories that Derek contributed to, it's those kinds of analysis, analyses that are really gonna allow us to figure out how do we take the steps we need to take to start reopening the economy, uh, to start actually getting beyond the crisis that we've faced.
0: The New York Times is doing an incredible job. So thank you, Derek, and thanks, Alec, for putting him on this path because- Well, yeah, I, I didn't
1: do it alone. It was a lot of <laughs> It was my, the whole community here in the geography department at the University of Oregon that <laughs> did, yes, and and it's Derek himself is a brilliant guy.
0: <laughs> Wonderful work that they're doing. And I think it's really interesting to note also the advances in geospatial technology that have allowed us to visualize the spread of this pandemic in a way that wasn't possible even in 2003 when we were watching SARS or even more recently with Ebola. Um so it's it's really interesting to see how how geographers can get involved in helping tell the story and show the spread of the absolutely. disease. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And those technologies are going to be key to dealing with the kind of disconnect we've been talking about in this this conversation, because we're gonna really need a detailed understanding of the spatiality of the crisis that is not just driven by generalizations across political units, if we're gonna be able to develop a path forward that, that makes sense.
0: Exactly. Well, I think that's all the time we have today, Alec. For all of our listeners interested in learning more about how geography and borders impact global processes, we have a link to Alec's book on our website at americangeo.org. Thanks so much to you, Alec, for joining us today and reminding us to consider just how important geopolitics and borders are at a time like this.
1: Well, it's a pleasure being with you.
0: Thanks. Have a good one.